Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our second one-off episode on the Freedom Convoy, Mennonites, and Fascism. Uh, hope you enjoyed the first one. Uh, in the space between uh, the recording of the first episode and uh, now, when I'm recording this one, it's February the 14th. It's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Jill, and happy Valentine's Day, uh, everybody else, if Valentine's Day is your thing. There have been some developments in the Freedom Convoy and related occupations uh, that have been directly borne out by uh, our definition of fascism by Clara Zetkin from the previous episode, if you remember that. It works, folks. You can apply the lessons of history to, uh, to contemporary events. Like I said, this is not new. People have seen this before and uh, wrote down uh, the lessons from it. So... Uh, a couple things. There was there was a large counter-protest here in Winnipeg uh, last Saturday. Hundreds of people turned out. They outnumbered the people in the far-right occupation. Seems like morale was good. Got the message across. Things were relatively peaceful. I wasn't able to attend. I did have uh, previous plans made that took precedence. I wanted to go. Uh, but people that I know did go, and they did share video and some of their thoughts. So I I did see what went on there. Uh, but you'll notice there was one arrest made uh, on Saturday during that time, and that arrest was of an indigenous person uh, who was holding a sign and blocking the roadway. So you remember from the last episode, the racial scapegoating there? You have uh, a far-right occupation of a capital city and provincial capitals for over a week, going on to over two weeks, and border blockades. And uh, in Manitoba, there's a border blockade as well, with like 50 vehicles blockading our main uh, access to the U.S. Uh, at Emerson on Highway 75. And the only person arrested so far was during the counter-protest, which was peaceful, uh, was... One indigenous person, okay? One indigenous person. There's your racial scapegoating right there. And then you have the convergence of the uh, the convergence of police and military power uh, with the far right, uh, which was also one of the conditions for fascism, uh, in which you have, yes, the police are arresting the one indigenous person, uh, all the other white blockaders, no problem, they can do whatever they want, one indigenous person stands in the road, uh, they get arrested. Uh, then also we have um, reports of uh, two Canadian military special forces personnel uh, participating in the convoy in Ottawa. So that's a melding of people in the military and people in the far right. And you might have read that over the weekend in Alberta at their border blockade in Coots, Alberta. I think that's, I don't know how you pronounce it. But uh, 11 people were arrested. The RCMP uh, moved in and arrested 11 people after um, after a report came in that a small group within that border blockade uh, were arming themselves and were prepared to use violence. So not necessarily your, uh, your armed street gangs uh, harassing people in the streets and urban centers, uh, but like a rural paramilitary far-right group um, arming themselves and preparing to use violence to further their far-right aims. And that's something that Clara Zetkin 
observed and reported on and predicted uh, almost 100 years ago. And these were the same uh, conditions that were borne out in the countries where fascism did explicitly take over. And then on the other side of that, we have something really cool and uh, an uplifting and morale building and uh, a shaft of sunlight just uh, breaking through the clouds and and shining on us all of uh, working class led uh, opposition to uh, the blockade in Ottawa resulted in a number of people which started out as a couple dozen people uh, blocking the convoy uh, blocking 30 trucks from the convoy in Ottawa on a street uh, they were quickly joined by thousands more ordinary working people uh, to kettle them, block them in. Uh, then uh, they uh, they were successful in not escalating. Some of the Freedom Convoy participants did try to start, start fights, but they didn't escalate. Uh, through dialogue, through speaking to them, uh, they were able to negotiate the convoy, giving up uh, their far-right paraphernalia and Canadian flags and fuel that they were transporting to the convoy. They had to give them up, and then uh, one at a time, each convoy vehicle was allowed to leave. And this was done strictly and independently by community members, by ordinary community members, uh, led by working people with uh, with specific ties to uh working class organizations and uh this is these are the types of movements that uh, Claire Zetkin uh said we needed uh in order to uh repel or fight or diffuse uh the growing uh fascist momentum and that's playing out right now in real time that happened in Ottawa on Saturday I think and the notable thing is this had nothing to do with the police. This wasn't organized by the police. This wasn't directed by the police or the government. The police and the government is standing by. They're waiting for the, uh, for the far-right occupation to basically like dictate what they're going to do. They're not interfering with the far-right occupation. They're interfering with one indigenous guy standing in a road, though. So, um... These regular working people took it upon themselves to do this themselves. Don't rely on the police and don't rely on the government to intervene. And certainly it's it's a mistake to call for for government and police uh, to intervene. If you are a working person, the government is a capitalist government. They represent the interests of the ruling class, which who are explicitly capitalists. And the police explicitly works for them, for the ruling class and their job the reason that they were founded is to protect private property and profit and to advance the interests of the ruling class which is which controls the government conservative or liberal it doesn't matter even if you had the ndp in it uh by now uh the ndp isn't a working class organization anymore it might have been at one point uh, but it isn't anymore this an NDP government would be sitting back and and uh, letting this happen as well. So you need ordinary working people and the people who rely on ordinary people to live to um to come together and organize and do these things for themselves. So you have to learn uh, how to do it. I'll put links to this stuff. And when you hear it 
when you hear it from the actual participants, from the people who are actually doing it, it's a lot more uh, powerful and inspiring. And we can do this too. You can do it too in your own communities. And the sooner that you can jump on any far right or fascist influence in your communities, in your circles, and nip it in the, in the bud, uh, the less you'll need these mass uh, mobilizations of, of ordinary people. But uh, I think we will need to learn, we will all need to learn how to do this if we want to reverse the downward slide into. Uh, misery and mental illness and destruction of communities, families, and the environment. We all need to learn how to organize to do this. And then we need to learn how to organize to actually uh, wield power democratically. Uh, it's a big project. Uh, we might not see it in our lifetimes, but we all need to start at least somewhere doing something to learn how to, how to bring this moderately better world into existence. Uh, because nobody else is going to do it for us. Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to go to work, and you can do it at work. You can't do it online. Sorry to say, you can't do it by posting stuff online or listening to podcasts or making podcasts. You've got to do stuff in real life. You're not going to do it by simply having the right opinions on the right issues and purchasing uh, ethical products or attempting uh an ethical sort of business that's not that's not how you do it it's only through building those relationships of care and solidarity call it uh being having genuine friendships uh being neighborly practicing uh hospitality or the virtue of charity in the traditional christian sense uh, mutual aid if you're of the anarchist persuasion uh, and these like coordinated structures, they do take forms like labor unions and uh, cooperatives, uh, renters associations, your neighborhood Facebook group. You could, you could start there. There's any, any number of ways you can go. It depends on your circumstance will dictate where is the easiest place for you to plug in your church or uh, other religious community. You could start there having intentional conversations with your families and friends. That's that's it. You don't have to debate anybody. You don't have to argue anything. I'd recommend not getting into any debates and arguments. That rarely leads anywhere good. But if you have, if you know, but if you're around people who are sympathetic and are asking questions, then uh, that's perfectly fine. That's your that's your main in right there. All those years of uh, evangelical Sunday school are <laughs> finally paying off, huh? They should have never uh, taught me about the. The Great Commission. They should have taken that part out of the Bible if they didn't. Uh, if they didn't want socialists using it against them, it's only through building those relationships of care and solidarity uh, that lead to uh, people acting uh, in the interests of their community together in a coordinated, organized way. Everybody swimming in the same direction. Everyone pulling uh, on the rope at the in the same direction at the same time. That's it. Not going to do it by hanging out on Zoom and Slack. You can use Zoom and Slack and online. Use it only the bare minimum amount that will help you organize and do real things that exert influence in real life. Uh, even if the fascist movement is uh, nipped in the bud now, uh, we will need to learn how to do this because 
uh, far-right people in our communities and fascists in our communities aren't going anywhere. Uh, they're going to they're gonna stay far-right or fascist and might even slide farther to the right. That is, unless they can be interdicted or intervened with uh, by the majority of the people around them uh, before that can happen. There has to be mechanisms for people to rejoin the fold uh, of the of the broader community uh, after when they are ready to uh, ditch the far right ideology. Uh, the community members have to have a way to safely reintegrate them. Um, forgiveness is important, but also strong boundaries. These are huge topics. You'll need uh, a lot of time to discuss, but things to think about. So good news from Ottawa, uh, good news all around, but we can still see how this uh, process of far-right mo mobilization and emer with emerging fascist characteristics is, is still playing out in front of our eyes. We're going to dig a little deeper now into uh, like why there are so many Mennonites on the far right. I say that and it just sounds like a bad Jerry Seinfeld bit to me. But why... What's the deal with that? Like I said before, there's now a Southern Manitoban uh, Mennonite interim leader of the National Conservative Party. We recently had a provincial interim leader of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party, was also a Mennonite from Steinbeck, uh, Calvin Gertson. And uh, so what? Like, what's going on here? A lot of the Freedom Convoy are explicitly Mennonite. They have Mennonite names attached to the businesses. They have addresses that are from uh, Mennonite towns in southern Manitoba. Mennonites are all over this thing, and not just in Manitoba, but uh, in Ottawa and around the country. An outside observer might not notice this. Obviously, I do. And the other Mennonites surely do, um, because uh, they know these people. These are members of their families in some cases. There's their employers, their friends, are part of this this uh, so-called freedom convoy thing, this uh, far right occupation. As I was trying to say in in the first episode, it isn't just a coincidence. Mennonites were vocal against the lockdown, anti-vax, anti-restrictions, anti anti any of that stuff. Not a coincidence, and it didn't come out of nowhere. There are actual historical uh, reasons for this. And that's what we're exploring. So I guess this one, we're doing a little bit more of just Mennonite history and how that ties into what we were talking about in the previous episode about uh, defining fascism. And again, I'm not saying that this is a, that Mennonites are explicitly fascist and I'm not painting them all with the same brush. I think this is a, a small minority of ultra-conservative Mennonites um, that have pretty much always existed uh, and were among the first uh, group to settle here in Manitoba. And even though like a lot of them have pretty much completely assimilated with a wider society and aren't, wouldn't consider themselves religious, would consider themselves to have like left the religion, uh, that social conditioning like still exists and is carry, carrying over and finding, uh, finding a very welcome home uh, on the far right. Okay, so def to define the far right, we're going to use a definition from uh, David Camfield's article on Briarpatch, The Far Right, The Hard Right, and Our Fight Against Them, uh, published in 2018. It's a few years ago now, but uh, these definitions don't really, don't really change. So, 
and still applicable. Um, so from the article, uh, what are the hard right and the far right? Uh, I'm reading now. Uh, there are two currents to the right of the established right. What I call the hard right doesn't aim to get rid of capitalist democracy, even if they want to dismantle aspects of it, such as many equality rights, and enthuse about a more repressive state. The far right is even worse. People who want to eliminate capitalist democracy, along with the others who don't share that goal, but are ready to violently attack their targets. The far right includes fascists, who are distinguished from other far right elements, above all by their commitment to building a mass movement that can unleash violence against its enemies. The line between the hard right and the far right isn't firm. Far right activists often operate inside the larger forces of the hard right. In certain circumstances, supporters of the hard right can easily evolve in a more extreme direction. Um, so that's applicable now because we can see those uh, conditions at play in the Freedom Convoy. And the difference between the hard right and the far right is important. And again, there's gray area at the boundaries of all these uh, political definitions. Far, hard right, you can think of like as the as the right wing of the established uh, political parties, like the Conservative Party or the PC or or whatever. People who still generally work within the democratic framework, even if they're trying to dismantle aspects of it. This applies also to the People's Party, the Mad Max, Bernier, whatever you want. Uh, you can write him off as a joke, but that's the that's a hard right populist party that's courting uh, unorganized aspects of the far right. Whether it's just a fundraising scam or Bernier has like an actual aspiration to political power at this point, who knows? But uh, that's that's the play with the People's Party. Uh, they want to dismantle as much uh, as much democratic power as possible. Democracy is a threat to the right. In, uh, anyone on, on the right, uh, be it the like right-wing liberals or any brand of conservatives, uh, it's about preserving class power. That's the, that's the project. Uh, democracy uh, that is uh, administration of authority by ordinary people is, uh, is a threat to their class position. So anyone who is on the right has uh, what they have in common is a is is a distrust of or desire to uh, lessen democracy in in some way, shape, or form. It's inherently uh, authoritarian, even if not explicitly so. That's maybe farther along the line, and the farther right you go, the more explicitly authoritarian it gets because you're you're more specifically you're more explicitly enacting out your class interest um there's no coincidence that the rich are generally are generally right wing uh economically even if they uh even if they support progressive social causes the whole um uh the problems are bad yes but the the causes the causes of those problems ooh so good that's the uh economic right uh socially liberal thing so yeah the far right includes fascists which we talked about but doesn't necessarily mean fascists uh the far right 
uh, are people who are more explicitly working to eliminate uh, capitalist democracy. And there's a whole hodgepodge of, of all of those of, of groups within that. Uh, Alberta separatists, libertarians, your fascists, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, uh, even and your hardline uh, bourgeois folks, petty bourgeois folks, your small business owners, your landlords, uh, landowners, uh, that kind of thing. Not all business owners, etc., are hard right or, or far right even, but uh, generally that's the class that they that they'll come from. Working class people can also be hard right or, or far right, as you see, but they're. Uh, generally uh, not in the majority of these like organizations and these these organized groups um and if they are they don't usually hold a whole lot of power within them okay now let's move on to who the mennonites are and what their relationship is to the far right um and uh we'll start with some of the main beliefs of Mennonites, and then I'll do try to do as short and basic a Mennonite history as possible, focusing on the Russian Mennonite strain, uh, the one that uh, dominates here in southern Manitoba. Any Mennonites listening may know a whole lot more about the about Mennonite history than I do. I'm doing my best. I'm going to try to do it like somewhat point form. Uh, it might end up being long anyway. I'll try to veer veer away from the rabbit holes but one of the things that is interesting is when you see the beliefs of the mennonites how they informed their activity over time and shaped them as uh, culture ethnicity etc and some of the intentions um and core facets of mennonite belief do uh, are comfortably uh, would be comfortably on the left now um that's kind of interesting but um, you can see how real existing like uh, material and social conditions uh, change what is an uh, change ideology or change the behavior or trump the behavior of people who hold the ideology. I guess like uh, circumstances as they are acting on people in real time um, will in most cases trump whatever their uh, individual ideology is, even their communal ideology. And the Russian Mennonite story is a perfect example of this, I think. So right off the bat, we have uh, the Schleitheim Confession. <laughs> uh, again, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, adopted February 24th, 1527. And this is one of the earliest expressions of belief uh, for the Mennonite faith. Um, so just using this as, as a template, uh, we have... Um, we have seven articles here. The first is the ban, that's excommunication or shunning. Uh, that's a holdover from the Catholic Church. It's a social disciplinary tool, a very effective social disciplinary tool, and it's an economic disciplinary tool. Uh, if you're shunned by your community, if no one's going to talk to you, no one's going to do business with you, no one's going to buy and sell your stuff with you. And also, if you're a worker, no one's going to employ you. You lose your job, essentially. So shunning, excommunication, powerful social tool. Uh, Mennonites shunned will often choose to leave the community altogether uh, it, rather than in, endure this. And I wouldn't blame them for that at all. Um, we have the breaking of bread. That's the communion. Uh, again, same as, as Catholicism and every other church denomination. And then we have separation from and shunning of the abomination. 
and by the abomination they mean the Roman Catholic Church and other worldly groups and practices. Uh, heathens and people of other religions would get tossed into this uh, abomination bin as well. So that's a big point, separation from and shunning of the outside world. Uh, that leads to a lot of uh, running away and paranoia about what the outside world may be doing and may be doing to you. Some misunderstandings there. Um, after that, you have the believer's baptism that's in opposition to the infant baptism. Mennonites don't do infant baptism. That's This is the one that ties them directly to the Anabaptist tradition. Mennonites are from the Anabaptist uh, tradition, which is distinct from the Protestant tradition, distinct from the Catholic tradition. Um, and uh, the believer's baptism is uh, baptism by uh, informed adults, basically, uh, where you're choosing to enter the church community, and by extension, the economic and social community, by your own choice. And that's different from infant baptism, when you get access to the social community right from the get-go. Uh, you are born into it. Uh, with Anabaptists, yeah, you have to choose. And that's a... Um, and that's really, really important. Uh, the next one is pastors in the church. Uh, I think that means just like lay pastors are lay people. They don't have any special status within the congr congregation. They're ordinary people within the congregation that are assuming a teaching role. Um, they might have some specialized training, but they'll also have farms and businesses and, and jobs just like everybody else. Renunciation of the sword, that's pacifism, and that ties into, again, separation from the abomination, separation from the outside world, same as the believer's baptism. Uh, you don't recognize the authority of the Catholic Church or secular authorities, so of course you're not going to take up arms on their behalf. Uh, you're not going to join the army or the militia or, or the police or anything like that. And then you have renunciation of the oath, that is uh, swearing as proof of that you're telling the truth. Um, again, you're not going to you're not going to do that. Um, well, for one, I think it's following the where it says in the Bible, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no." Uh, kind of like taking that literally, but what it does functionally is it it also means you're not submitting to Catholic or secular authorities uh, because you're not going to swear oaths. Usually, you'd be swearing an oath uh, in a legal setting for legal reasons, so you're not recognizing the authority of the uh, Catholic Church or the state. So that's, those are some important, some important things that we can keep in mind as we're uh, going through the, uh, the rest of the Mennonite history here. You can see how those ideals and beliefs are shaped by, um, shaped by their circumstances and their interaction with the outside world and how they're uh, at times compromised or change over time by social forces around them. Origins are important. Origin stories are important, and they're important in the Mennonite context, too. Uh, when the Mennonites were formed, that was a time of immense social upheaval in Europe, in Northern Europe specifically. Uh, it's the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, with the emergence of the printing press and a bit of the democratization of, of information. There's a new technology in play and a new economic structure that's emerging at the same time, and that is immense uh, social implications. For the first time, the literate classes, being the the middle classes, the ones that could could read your average 
uh, peasant on the fields wasn't going to be literate, but the literate, the ones who had, who could read and had uh, access to reading material, um, the printing press was, um, it was like social media is now today, like, like Twitter, um, like the internet, obviously. Uh, it's it's on that scale as far as uh, as a social socially revolutionary technology because for the first time uh, you could read the Bible in your own language in your own vernacular and you didn't have to rely on the special mediation of uh, your parish priest or the Catholic Church to do it for you uh, you could you could read the Bible yourself and in Protestantism that meant. Uh, you could have your own personal internal relationship with with God uh, in your own in your own life in your own in your own head, and you can interpret whatever that means basically. Because the only person that you're answering to uh, spiritually is is God. Uh, you don't need the priest for that because you are on the same level as him. You have the same Bible as him. You know you know what's in there. So one of the things that comes up obviously is infant baptism people reading the bible and being like hey wait a minute there's no infant baptism in the bible like what what gives what and what else is the church hiding from us what else are they doing and also you probably have realized that the church seems like very very rich and if you're a peasant or an artisan or a merchant or something you're probably resenting uh, handing off a lot of your uh, a lot of your uh, income over to the church for what reason i mean the priests look like they're they're living pretty good, and the priests are all like related to your. Uh, they're the nephew of your local lord as well. For some reason, they seem to be in cahoots. So, if you're part of like a rising middle class or merchant class that the emerging capitalist system is starting to to raise up the the burghers in Germany, where we get the term the the bourgeois the bourgeois the bourgeoisie, a bit of you have a bit of wealth. You don't have as much as the uh, the local lord. But now there's more of you than him, and then and you can uh, you can hire some guys, you can hire some peasants, and arm them, and and uh, go uh, go to the castle and and have a word with the Lord, shall we? And you can go to your uh, local your local parish church or monastery and and be like, okay, okay, priests and monks, we we'd like a word with you about this whole infant baptism thing, among other things. Because we know what's in the Bible too, and it says stuff that uh, you weren't telling us, and stuff that you were saying was different. So uh, we're going to be in charge of our own religion and our own societies now. Thank you very much, and uh, we're going to try to establish our understanding of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Because uh, we read that part in the New Testament, uh, where all the Christians were like living together and sharing what they had and living communally and stuff, and we. Uh, we want to do that too, because it seems like our society that you, the church, and our feudal structures made isn't really providing that for us. In fact, uh, our lives suck, and you're rich and we're poor, and we're and we're going to do something about that. So, and the first Anabaptists um, did try to do something like that, and they tried to do that at Munster in the Munster Rebellion. They uh, they tried to take over the city of Munster in in Germany and ad- administrate it under. Th- this new social order, this new social, spiritual, economic order um, that the that was developing among Anabaptists and Protestants in northern Germany, and uh, this was this is a violent rebellion. Uh, Anabaptist Mennonites uh, they weren't always pacifists. That came that came later. Anabaptists are explicitly revolutionary and will use force and and violence uh, if necessary to 
to achieve their goals, which they believe is a more accurate understanding of the Christian life and Christian community. To them, now they're living, uh, they're living in a fallen, forsaken, sinful world, and that's uh, and the Catholic Church is a part of that. That's why they are viewed as the abomination. The Munster Rebellion, valiant effort, didn't work. It was uh, the authorities came in, put it down, uh, mass <laughs> mass death, massacres, suffering. There's refugees fleeing from Munster, and they flee north. Uh, a lot of the refugees flee north to the Low Countries, to the Netherlands, to a region called Friesland, where uh, Menno Simons and his brother are living. And Menno Simons is a Catholic priest, and him and his brother uh, fall in with the Anabaptists. They, the Anabaptist thing sounds pretty good to them, and uh, what they're what they're doing seems closer to a, uh, authentic uh, New Testament Christianity, and they w- they want to join in on that. So Menno Simon's brother and the and other Anabaptist refugees stage an armed occupation of a local monastery, and this is this is a revolutionary act. It's it's a wealth appropriation, basically, and wealth re- redistribution. You could say it takes because monasteries were uh, extremely wealthy at this time at the end of the end of the feudal era, beginning of the early modern era. It's why when uh, Henry VIII split off from the Catholic Church and invented uh, Anglicanism, that uh, raising the monasteries was, uh, or disbanding the monasteries was top of the list. You're bringing that wealth that had been stored up and accrued uh, within the Catholic Church under under secular control, uh, in the case of uh, Henry VIII in England. And for the Anabaptists, they're bringing it into um, Anabaptist control. Uh, this occupation was again violently put down by the uh, local Habsburg authorities who were um, ruling the Netherlands at that time, and Menno Simon's brother was killed, uh, along with all the other Anabaptists, were either, uh, were either massacred in the monastery or executed uh, afterwards. And this had a profound effect on on Menno. Uh, it it devastated him. It just it just broke him apart, and uh, he saw that not only was the outside world like truly an abomination, truly opposed to any sort of actual authentic uh, Christian society, completely opposed to um, to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, that uh, that even uh, resisting it and trying to establish a place within it was impossible, and especially if impossible. Uh, through the use of force or violence. So um, Menno Simons re- renounced conflict altogether, not just non- per- non-participation in, uh, in the military, but, uh, but all conflict, all violence. And uh, Menno knows that you need that for Anabaptists to live, to carry out their uh, revolutionary social project, that they need to leave uh, the fallen... Uh, the fallen outside world in the dust. They need to. They need to get the hell out of there. Um, otherwise, they would always be hounded and persecuted and uh, and brought back into the fallen uh, the fallen world. And indeed, they were hounded and persecuted by Catholic and secular authorities. Uh, burned at the stake. Drowning was a favorite uh, mode of execution since Anabaptists like to get baptized so much 
uh how about uh, how about a permanent baptism those uh, dante's inferno style uh, ironic uh, punishments um there's a famous story mennonites love uh, a guy named dirk willems was imprisoned by local authorities uh some friends get together to bust him out of jail and uh, as he's running away he's running over uh he's running across a frozen lake or river um and being pursued by one of his jailers uh his pursuer breaks through the ice and is struggling and calling out for help dirk willems turns around uh, goes back to him and rescues him uh gets uh, immediately apprehended uh by the guy that he rescued uh taken back to jail and is later executed um that kind of describes what mennonites are all about <laughs> right there uh, for better or for worse I mean, I probably wouldn't have turned back to rescue that guy knowing that I probably was going to get myself executed uh, for doing it, especially if I don't recognize the power of the secular state anyway. Why would I turn back and and help this guy? Um, And what happens to my friends? My friends went through all that trouble to bust me out of jail. What happened to them? Maybe they get caught too. So, But uh, who's to say? I I won't pass judgment. I don't want to pass too much judgment on, on old Dirk. Uh, he did what he thought was best. So the Mennonites uh, start their start their journey, their nomadic uh, wandering. They're uh, they're moving from place to place, and they I- identify with the children of Israel uh, quite quite strongly. They see themselves as a sort of like a new Israel, like a chosen like a chosen people uh, who are carrying the flame for uh, for God for Christianity. The Mennonites start moving from place to place now, not just to uh, escape the the religious outside world, but also the social authority of feudalism and the economic system that that goes along with that. Uh, remember, the Mennonites the Mennonites are generally middle middle class. You'd have to be, like we said before, to uh, to read and understand the Bible to have a copy of it. They're not really peasants, and that's one of the main things to keep in mind that during this. Um, emergent uh, capitalist phase as capitalism was in was was in the pupa stage uh just about to burst out onto the world like some sort of nightmarishly beautiful and terrifying uh dark lord uh, old lovecraftian god creature and uh and splay its tentacles ar- around the globe and make everyone subservient to it, uh, etc. Just about to join the, the his- world historical stage, uh, Mennonites were there at the beginning. And uh, I've, I've been told, and I'd, maybe I'll try to find a source for this, this may or may not be true, but uh, the fun thing about uh, gossip and this is that I'm not an expert, I'm not a layman. I'm not going to get graded for saying this, and so I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if it's really true or not, but uh, it, il- it illustrates uh, the, Mennonite, the Mennonite role, the Mennonite economic role, like right from the get-go. And you've you ever heard of tul- tulip mania? It's one of the first uh, economic capitalist economic bubbles and, and crises. The Netherlands, the Low Countries, was one of the cradles of capitalism, that and... Uh, there in and England, you have a speculative bubble on the tulip trade um, that uh, the prices of tulips get astronomically inflated. People buying tulips on credit. Think of it as like cryptocurrency or or NFTs uh, right now. I guess that's the thing that's happening. 
uh, the housing market is in a bubble it, uh, in Canada right now. Not not good things, uh, economically speaking, generally. But this was the tulip craze was one of these first uh, first commodity bubbles. And, uh, of course, the commodity bubble bursts uh, economic ruin and hardship and devastation for everybody. And it was a significant event in the development of capitalism and in the development of, of the economic system, the world economic system as we know it. And uh, it's inter- interesting to think that that was where the Mennonites originated and there were uh, Mennonites may have been involved uh, in this tulip mania bubble. So I guess the first point in Mennonites on the far right is the far right is an expression of capitalism in in crisis. The Mennonites were uh, the Mennonites were there at the beginning of capitalism, at the beginning of cap of a, the first capitalist crisis, and uh, and born out of a revolutionary uh, social crisis. So all these things are happening, and the Mennonites are are born from this uh, from this fire from this from this inf- uh, social economic inferno. Okay, so moving along, the Mennonites uh, move from the Netherlands to West Prussia. Ironically, West Prussia is east of Prussia proper, or was at the time. It was a, a German enclave around the city of Danzig uh, in what is now Poland. I think it's in Poland now. It was Pol- in Poland before, but uh, a little German, ethnically German uh, enclave around this uh, port city on the Baltic, uh, surrounded by uh, Polish lands. And again, that's, an, that's, a, that's a theme in the Russian Mennonite story, moving from ethnic German enclave to ethnic German enclave, either displacing the uh, indigenous people there or being like surrounded by them in some sort of a, a hostile relationship. Remember, your Mennonites are, are merchants, artisans, and landowners. You're moving into a place where there's already... Uh, where there's already indigenous people and uh, peasants uh, of the local ethnic group that are already there, uh, they're not going to look on you too kindly, and you probably are not going to have a, a huge uh, regard for them. They're heathens, they're fallen people, they're living in the abomination anyway. They're your enemies. So the Mennonites live in West Prussia for 250 years. It's interesting also that uh, Danzig is part of was probably part of the Hanseatic League at, at this time this is also connected to the Netherlands it's probably a reason why they uh, why they moved there it's a the Hanseatic League was a powerful uh, trading network basically a loose affiliation or federation of of ports of trading ports um, one of the cradles of of capitalism and the Mennonites moved there t- too because they're capitalists if not full-blown capitalists then like proto-capitalists they share this with the with the mainline Protestant churches. It's part of the same ethos. You've heard of the Protestant work work ethic, and the Mennonites were known for this too, being hard workers and and thrifty. These are capitalist values. These are values uh, taken from their class, from their merchant class, from their artisanal class. These are necessary traits to have if you're going to succeed uh, within that social class. It has nothing to do with uh, religion at all the religious uh the religious religious overtones to thrift and uh working yourself to the bone uh kind of came in later to justify to justify that denial of pleasure basically strict economic discipline that you hold yourself to account to to do 
and you're going to hold others to account. And anyone who doesn't uh, hold those strict uh, physical, spiritual, economic uh, disciplinary uh, disciplinary habits, you're, they're not going to be as blessed as you. They're not going to be as chosen as you. They're not going to be as good as you. They're certainly not going to succeed in in your uh, proto-capitalist economic system that coincidentally just uh, happens to align with your class interests. Uh, you can graft on the uh, the religious reasons after why that's good. Uh, Prussia is also, so th- from like the 15, 1530s to the 1780s, roughly, uh, the Mennonites are in West Prussia. The tulip craze happened in the 1600s, so... Um, the Russian Mennonites probably weren't part of that. If there were any Mennonites remaining in, in the Netherlands, and I think there still were, they could have been involved in that in the tulip mania thing. But Prussia, uh, Mennonites like fi- history and family history. Um, my Kraker side, so my dad's part of the family. Um, the earliest uh, Kraker ancestor that I know of uh, was born in Prussia uh, at that time. Okay, from there, the Menos are hanging out in, in uh, West Prussia uh, for 250 years. Uh, Catherine the Great comes calling the uh, Empress of Russia. They just had a war with, uh, with the Turks, with the Ottoman Turks, uh, and they've acquired some new land from the Ottoman Empire that uh, is in the Ukraine and Crimea, that sort of area. Ukraine is always popping up for some reason. It's a hot hot topic nowadays, too. Uh, there's interesting connections there. Ukraine is a fascinating topic, uh, but we're going to try to stay away from, from that. Uh, maybe unavoidable. But, okay, Catherine the Great, the Russian Empire, has this new land in the Ukraine now. What are they going to do? Uh, we have uh, like Ukrainian peasants. We have ethnic uh, Tatars still hanging around uh are we going to give that land uh to them uh sure it seems natural that we would do that they're living there anyway they are you could say that they're they have an indigenous claim to that land perhaps uh but no uh catherine the great you're not gonna do that uh these people were living under uh turkish ottoman control uh they're not necessarily too uh would be too much on your side they wouldn't be taking your side you're they would see you and the russian empire as a foreign invader so you might have some uh resistance from the local peasantry there if you just like let them take over and and you can't have local peasantry in what is one of the most fertile regions of of europe it's the breadbasket of the russian empire uh if not the entirety of that part of Europe. It's extremely lucrative. You want to keep that land uh under control. Uh so you can your the the empire can keep reaping the benefits from that wealth, from that wealthy land. So okay, you're not gonna give it to the Ukrainian peasants or the or the Tatars, uh, because they might be hostile to you. You're gonna bring in uh this foreign group who just happens to have a reputation for industry and thrift and also uh, is practicing the same sort of economics that you want to move towards, they're going to be uh, uh, f- friendly to you. Yeah, they're going to hold the same values as, as you generally. And uh, so Catherine extends an invitation to the Mennonites in West Prussia to come occupy this land in the Ukraine, uh, to farm it, 
to make it ex- to make it productive for the benefit of the Russian Empire as a whole. Uh, the Mennonites, this is a this is a godsend to them, just the kind of thing that they're looking for. And so uh, a bunch of the Mennonites from uh, from the Danzig area then move over to uh, to the Ukraine or Ukraine as the current contemporary country is, is called now. Um, back then it was the Ukraine. It was just a region, uh, just another region in the larger uh, Russian Empire. Lots of Russians still view it as such, and there's lots of Russians in the eastern Ukraine. I think it's Russian dominant in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, I said we'd not get into Ukraine, but that just helps you understand some of the historical reasons of what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Also, pipelines. There's pipelines running through the Ukraine, or they are, or they want to build pipelines in the Ukraine. That's another thing. Okay, enough about that. So the Mennonites, despite their like lofty ideals about uh, shunning the abomination. They really can't help themselves in the in the when faced with free real estate. And honestly, who uh, who would be able to help themselves, right? Am I right? Um, free real estate trumps all uh, lofty ideals about the kingdom of heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or you can you can compromise. You can maybe this part of the uh, the outside world, the heathen world, the abomination isn't really that bad. Uh, Catherine the Great isn't she German anyway? I think so. So yeah, you can trust her. She's German like us, and she wants us to go. Um, she's given us free land, so let's let's go. You know, uh, those Ukrainian peasants and Tatars—they're heathens anyway. We don't we don't give a shit about them. Uh, off we go. So Mennonites, brr, 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 pack up, truck all truck all their stuff off to the Ukraine, and uh, so they live there happily, peace and harmony. Uh, Catherine. Uh, in addition to giving them free land, promises that they're not going to be interfered with by uh, the secular state at all in any sort of way, honor their uh, re- their strange religious practices, um, won't make them serve in the military, any of that sort of thing. They will have like sovereignty and, and autonomy in their own little uh, reserve or colony. And yes, these are literally called reserves and colonies. Because that's what it is. It's a colonization project of the Russian Empire using Mennonites as the colonizers. Exactly the same deal when they eventually moved to uh, Canada and the United States. And that would be that would be starting in less than 100 years after that, uh, 80 to 90 years after. After a couple generations, uh, Catherine the Great is gone. The original uh, settlers that moved from uh, West Prussia to the Ukraine, they're all gone. Uh, the current czar and the Russian uh, state bureaucracy feels like, okay, it's time to do a nationalization project. Time to, to make uh, everyone in the Russian Empire, try to, try to make them all Russian. It's time to do that. Uh, all the other uh, Western European capitalist nations have done that long ago. Uh, the Italians even did it. Um, so nation state, this is the new idea. This is how we can bring all people together working together for the economic benefit of us the ruling class of this state hey it's great let's let's do it let's let's uh russify everybody russify the kazakhs use russify the ukrainians russify the mennonites the latvians everybody everybody's russian so to do that how are you going to do that you need to educate the peasantry you need to educate them in the proper values and the proper culture 
And you're going to do that with uh, with state-run schools, public schools, essentially. Same same deal here in Canada. Uh, but to the Mennonites, this is, a, this is a disaster. They remembered what they were promised uh, when Catherine brought them over, and uh, this was a, a this was a breaking of of that promise. Again, the heathen world, the outside world, the abomination is encroaching upon them. Uh, is there is there no peace for the Mennonites? Uh, apparently not. You can see how the Mennonites uh, wouldn't be into the whole uh, Russification process. Uh, they want to remain distinct, ethnically distinct, culturally distinct, uh, religiously distinct, uh, all of that. So the so the public schooling was a no go there, just as it has been a no go everywhere subsequently, including right now. If they're if the uh, if the state's going to impose public schooling on us, what else are they going to impose? Maybe the uh, maybe we're going to lose our uh, military exemption next. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that's percolating in the Mennonite communities as well, and uh, it just so happens that the that Canada's just opened a new frontier here on on the plains on the on the prairies. Uh, if you're reading along with me in the clearing the plains book then uh, we know a little bit about uh, what's going on with that and why uh there's just been a new province called manitoba created canada needs to to create that and it was uh again created uh born out of uh, social upheaval revolution a new a new uh, ethnic group emerged on the prairies called the metis and they saw themselves as as sovereign over their over their territory and they're connected they have a indigenous lineage and claim to that to that land and territory unfortunately uh for them that brings them in contact with the canadian state that is, wants to build a railroad uh from coast to coast and uh and take control of the valuable farmland and the uh and resources uh in that land in that frontier and to populate it uh, you need to have people who are sympathetic to that project. The Louis Riel stirred up the Métis and got them all riled up, and they tried to do a little rebellion there uh, out in the prairies, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Uh, the Métis wanted to have autonomy and self-determination as well, the same thing that the Mennonites did, but that put them at, at odds with the Canadian government. Uh, the Canadian government uh, was basically, well, too bad for you, Métis, uh, we don't trust you. Uh, we don't trust that you're that we're going to be able to work with you. So we need to, to replace you. It just so happens that there's this Mennonite group that wants to get out of uh, get out of Russia. And interestingly enough, it's the federal government that brings the first wave of Mennonites over, not the Manitoba pr provincial government. Uh, Manitoba was extremely new, uh, being formed like directly on the heels of the uh, Métis Rebellion, the Red River Rebellion. It didn't have a lot of its own like uh, government bureaucracy at that point, so the federal government brings it over, brings them over, and that's an important point. In that, why are they appealing to the federal government? Why do they have such a thing about about Trudeau when the provinces uh, decide uh, the public health measures and the public schooling and, and all that stuff? Where they really have a have a beef with the province, not the federal government, and this stems back to that they think that they are accountable directly to the federal government. Or that the federal government is accountable directly to them without the intermediary of of the province. So that's that's kind of interesting. They just never figured out that the province 
uh, is in control of all this stuff, they s- still think it's federal. It's kind of weird. But it does illustrate how isolated and insular still some of these communities are. Um, uh, despite the apparent dropping of uh, any uh, religious pretension or or claim to even like a, a Mennonite uh, lineage, they're fully assimilated patriotic citizens of Canada. And they're still acting out those same uh, colonial re- relationships right from the the beginning of the of their immigration and, and settlement here but this settlement this um this uh, gift of free real estate it's a mutually beneficial arrangement for mostly the more poor and landless uh mennonites more of the working class mennonites are going to take that opportunity now uh to jump ship for more free real estate uh or if the you're the metis stolen real estate this is where the whole stolen land comes from settlers and colonizers uh specifically working uh in concert with uh with the capitalist ruling class of canada so a bunch of uh, a bunch of mennonites uh jump ship and move move over to uh the new world to uh the new province of manitoba uh the wealthier ones the more well-to-do ones the more professional uh classes the small business classes the larger landowning classes they're uh, they have more of uh, their interest is to stay put. They're already wealthy. Things are going well. They're not really too concerned about this whole public schooling thing. It's good if your kids learn Russian, in fact, and uh, assimilate a little bit. They have a, a bit more of a pragmatic uh, view on on things due to their class position. They're, they don't have anything to gain by moving to uh, new what could be like a godforsaken country over here. The weather's even worse than where we are now. We don't know what the land is like. But the poorer ones and the more, and they happen to be the more conservative ones. They they move over to uh, to the new world, and uh, included in that group is the entire denomination of the Kleingemeinde, uh, and that is the dominate the the denomination that uh, both sides of my family generally descend from. Uh, one of my great, great, great grandfathers, I think great, great grandfather was the Altester or Bishop of that denomination, uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. And one of my great, great, great grandfathers, I think, I don't know how many greats should be in there, was one of the delegates sent, uh, to scout out the land and to see if the Mennonites wanted to move there and choose a place to settle. And that, uh, his name is David Clausen. And he helped found the community of Rosenort, uh, which still exists. And he was, uh, he's kind of a big deal around there. He's kind of a big deal in uh, Mennonite historical circles. People would know that name, uh, David Clausen. And my grandparents, uh, my grandparents lived in the, uh, the big old Clausen house at the old Clausen homestead out in, out in Rosenort. That house doesn't exist. It was it uh, it was a victim of the '79 uh, Red River flood, uh, but the yard and, and homestead so, still exists, and that's a historic site. I don't I don't think it's marked as a historic site. There's nothing uh, special there. I think it's still owned by uh, it's still owned by someone in the Craker family. The Craker family uh, married into the Clausen family, or vice versa, and uh, and that's how it got into the family anyway. But also. 
the Kleingemeinde. Uh, I think it was uh, 8,000 Mennonites moved in 1874 from the Ukraine to, uh, to Canada, the entire denomination of the Kleingemeinde, and they were a more conservative, uh, they were a more conservative offshoot of the mainline uh, Mennonite conference. Uh, interesting story about the founding of the Kleingemeinde. One of the main reasons that they split off was uh, was they were in opposition to turning uh, criminals and wrongdoers over to the secular police for punishment. That's kind of interesting. You might think that, well, that sounds very, uh, actually very left-wing and, and progressive, in fact, is to uh, not, not involve the police in, in your community affairs. And you'd, you'd think so. Uh, but keep in mind, this is the Mennonites' social structure is a theocratic, authoritarian patriarchy. Outside authorities are a direct threat to your social order, then. Why wouldn't you want to uh, bring in the state uh, to, to interfere in uh, crimes committed amongst your communities? Um, it's in the interest of more the, the people on the bottom, the poor people, the more working class people, because generally, like the wealthy older males are the ones that that form a, a little oligarchy in your in your community. They are also the ones that uh, that mediate conflicts and disputes. It's an inherent. It's a hier- inherently uh, hierarchical relationship, and, the, and those hierarchical social structures are breeding grounds for intense amounts of abuse. Um, so there's really no way to get around it, and that's one of the unfortunate stereotypes that Mennonites have and and any insular hierarchical authoritarian group is going to have this problem of uh, of abuse by the small group in power uh, towards anyone who's who's lower down on on the chain you can it happens in the workplace it happens in families um, famously the Catholic Church and the pedophile scandal there Mennonites are not immune to that sort of uh, systemic sexual abuse scandal uh that is something that has gone on in mennonite communities historically and unfortunately is probably uh happening now somewhere it's one of the things that happens in an authoritarian hierarchical social structure people on the bottom have no recourse to that type of abuse so uh it's in your interest if you're so it's in your interest if you're on top of uh, an abusive social structure that you you don't want to get the outside authorities uh, involved in your business. That's not really going to go well for you. I know somebody who's part of a far-right pet, vigilante pedophile hunting ring uh, in southern Manitoba, or at least this person is based in southern Manitoba. And that's really bad news when you have a uh, a far-right conservative pedophile hunting ring because it's kind of like the old uh, everybody's standing around. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. Um, uh, the call is coming from uh, inside the building. We'll just say that. Not all of them are involved in in systematic pedophilia, but you can you can be assured some of them are, and uh, that number at least is is non-zero. Let's just say that it's. A very popular topic in conspiratorial circles, and especially the QAnon meta conspiracy universe about the the billionaire pedophiles that uh, run the world. That that a lot of it, unfortunately, you can 
you can extrapolate that there's probably some truth to that, but it's also, uh, there's a lot of projection going on and would like to take any opportunity they can to scapegoat some uh, some brown-tinged people or any uh, any other uh, social scapegoats that might be in in their communities. Just saying. So if you do happen to know somebody who is involved in such a thing, um, pay attention. It's bad news. It's a dangerous group, and that's a dangerous person. You don't want that person near you or in your community anywhere, especially not where they might have some social influence. You'll want to take measures to nip that uh, in the bud as soon as possible. And, of course, distance yourself from that person and anything close to that sort of situation. It can't be more serious. Anyway, and I'm not saying that that is the reason uh, why the Kleingemeinde split off from the, the main conference. I'm just saying that that is the type of situation where these things are at play. Uh, unfortunately, there are well-documented cases of of systemic sexual abuse in Mennonite communities. Specifically, I think the Mennonite community in, in Mexico where there was systemic uh, sexual abuse of uh, women and young girls by older men in the community uh, that they tried to cover up, but uh, it eventually came to light and it's just pretty reprehensible. Speaks again to the, like, to the need of uh, ordinary people uh, developing uh, benefits of mutual care and solidarity amongst themselves, even within your, your own communities. Uh, if you're in any way, shape, or form, like on the bottom of a social structure or a workplace structure, you do need, you do really need to take care of yourselves and each other. That's a real thing that, you, that needs to happen. And oftentimes appealing to the, to the state authorities, to the police, as we see in, in a lot of cases, not just in like uh, sexual abuse cases, but in any case where you're on the bottom, if you're an indigenous person, uh, a working person, your your rights are often violated with impunity by the by people above you, and you have little recourse even to the state mechanisms because the state mechanisms aren't they don't work for you. They weren't created by you. You really have no stake in them. Uh, the police were created were created by and are controlled by the ruling class. In every in every case, any ruling class creates their their own authorities to enforce their their will but okay enough of that that's why you should be careful to call on state authorities to break up things like the freedom convoy for instance because uh, that's not good uh if any ordinary people do uh do get together and organize for their own interests those same state authorities will be used to crush you too so remember that and they won't need uh the prime minister to invoke the emergency uh, war measures act or anything to do it they're just going to do it they're not going to ask permission first any sort of leftist cause you'd see that in uh, indigenous protests and blockades all the time you see that happening in strikes all the time i know this is a rabbit hole but whatever uh, we have trudeau enacting the emergency measures act just like his dad did during the flq cr- crisis this is really dangerous for leftists and uh, and or ordinary uh, working class organizations and community groups and stuff, because and indigenous groups also, they're enacting the emergency the uh, emergency measures act to clear off the fascist freedom convoy. They'll also do that to uh, to put down your strike, to put down your uh, indigenous pipeline blockade, 
anytime the rabble gets too wound up, whether it's the left or the right, they'll use this to to crush it if if possible. So be careful about calling on the police or the government as as it's currently structured to uh, to come to your aid because uh, likely it feels good when uh, when the bad guys get crushed by the state. It doesn't feel too good when uh, they come for you, which they will. It's important to note the delegates, including my grandpa Dave, knew what was happening here in Canada. They knew that they were uh, that the land was being cleared for them. They knew that they were helping to dispossess uh, Métis and Indigenous people from their land. Uh, there were Métis farmers in the Red River Valley. Um, the Red River Settlement was a going concern for 50, 60 years beforehand. Um, uh, it was founded specifically as an agricultural settlement. It did have public institutions. It had its own uh, postal service. Uh, it was a semi It was an autonomous region with uh, a lot of uh, Métis control. The so the Mennonites knew what knew what was happening. They're aware of the shady land deals involved. Uh, and the Métis knew what were happening as as well. I've read that the Métis and the Mennonite delegates got into a brawl even uh, in Winnipeg, or I guess Fork area at the time, during that scouting out period, and that the delegates were very aware uh, that they were uh, taking land from Métis farmers under uh, unscrupulous circumstances, let's say. And that's the whole stolen land thing. You can't be explicit enough. If you're a Mennonite landowner, if you're any landowner in the Red River Valley, uh, you your land is stolen. That is a real thing. And uh, that's something that needs to be reckoned with if we're to have like uh, a just democratic society. Your land is not yours. You don't own it. You have really no right to it. Your right to the land, if you ha- if you own it in southern Manitoba, is based on what, like 150 years of of history, if that, a, a couple generations, uh, just like a an infinitely minute period of time in historical terms, uh, compared to uh, the indigenous people who uh, who were sovereign over that land uh, before you arrived. So um, that is a, that is an incontrovertible fact that needs to be reckoned with even if you have a capitalist understanding of of ownership of land uh, the indigenous people have way more of a claim on your land than you do uh, they've mixed their blood with that soil baby uh, there's way more indigenous blood in that soil than your blood my friend and uh some sort of uh paltry little uh, land acknowledgement uh, isn't gonna isn't gonna absolve you f- from that uh taking some sort of uh, government money for hiring uh, indigenous workers to work on your land is just a joke. Uh, you're still profiting from that labor on their own land, which it's incredible. Uh, that's the opposite of reconciliation, I would say. So that's w- why private property sucks. Is bad, it's evil. It's uh, it's made up. Private property is made up. There's no such thing as private property. You're going to defend your private property, your rights to this sole sovereignty over this patch of land? That's bullshit. It's not yours. Uh, that's why you need democratic ownership, community ownership, community administration of 
of all land and all capital. That's the point. So that these types of situations don't happen. You don't have like one guy, some sort of like a golden child of uh, three generations of uh, settlers hoarding huge swaths of land for their uh, vanity uh, project uh, that their dad is using as some sort of a tax evasion technique, something like that. So yeah, more uh, more communal democratic administration of all land and tools and all means of uh, creating wealth. That's the that's a non-negotiable thing for a better future. You got to reckon with that somehow. And that doesn't mean recreating some sort of feudal compound when there are many neo-feudal compounds all around southern Manitoba. I've been to them. I've seen them that are controlled by one guy or like one family. Uh, and then you have quarters for the workers that live there. Sometimes there's even huge dorms for migrant workers. Uh, these people don't own the land. They have no stake in your in your company, even if it's some sort of like uh, local organic uh, produce company. Uh, that's a neo-feudal structure. You're recreating a, a feudal structure, uh, which is inherently uh, reactionary. That's a far-right social structure. And that has no place in... Uh, that has no hope of contributing anything uh, worthwhile to the world. It's a dead end. And some of these people are explicitly monarchical about it. I'm, I know this is a rabbit hole, but like... I've had people with a straight face like talk to me about the uh, the benefits of feudalism and monarchy. So figure that one out. It's, there's it's weird. Okay, the the answer is that they see themselves as feudal monarchs, as little like barons and lords uh, and princelings on their land. They explicitly see themselves in those terms. It's should be should be should be obvious right now, especially in the convoy uh, the convoy protests and occupations. All these small business owners getting doxxed by their locals. Those are their feudal coats of arms. Uh, there's a guy in the town where I grew up who lives in a literal, literal fortified castle on the edge of town, a, a feudal compound. He flies the Canadian flag. Uh, his wife makes a very popular brand of granola bars. Uh, they support the Freedom Convoy. Ironically enough, they privately owned the former Manitoba pool elevator in town, something that was built... Uh, cooperatively by social democrats being uh independently owned by one person and uh he tore it down this year i think so it's demolished it's it's no more not saying that uh it would have been good to preserve it or whatever but uh, he could have afforded to preserve it as some as a historic remnant or landmark if you want to but uh there's no economic reason to have these uh things around so you're you're going to tear them down I'm, okay, I'm going to try to get myself back on track. Okay, Mennonites. Okay, Mennonites in Manitoba now. Uh, okay, well, we dispossessed the indigenous people. We're farming very good farmland, blah, 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 breadbasket of North America, etc., etc. We're getting really wealthy again, folks, and now we're ultra-conservative uh, here. The mainline group is back in Russia. Uh, so about 50 years later, in the 20s, Canada wants to do their uh, their national identity building program or expand it. So that means more state-run schools, more more public schools come in, uh, freaks out the Mennonites here, just like it did before back in Russia, because, oh, it's happening again! The abomination is upon us! Uh, 
This time we don't want to be Canadian. We don't want to be Canadianized. We can talk about like the role of uh, of state-run schools in uh, Indigenous history. We all know about residential schools. So public education does uh, does have some skeletons in its closet, unfortunately, literally, that, like we're finding out. Um, but there's... I'm going to say anything, at least a public institution can be democratically administered and can be uh, reformed by people within it on the inside, because uh, there's still enough democratic control in the public school system that you can do that. Parochial schools, Catholic schools, Anglican schools, church-run schools don't have that. It's an explicitly authoritarian, top-down hierarchy. You're not going to reform those things. Uh, so in the, in the 20s, a bunch of Mennonites pack up and move down to uh, Mexico and and South America later, I think, uh, to escape, uh, to escape the state, uh, the state assimilation authorities, uh, but also moving more to the frontier where there isn't a lot of state control, where you, you can live autonomously and, and assert your, your theocratic, patriarchal, authoritarian social system. going to get sick of saying that. And this group moving to Mexico uh, this has nothing to do with communism or Stalinism. Uh, that's important to note that the Mennonites that came to Manitoba first were already conservative when they got here. Were already far right when they got here. Okay, uh, this they're moving to escape uh, public schools and they're afraid of losing their military exemption again. Same same reasons as uh, the previous generation when they moved to Canada. So like. No one in my immediate and close extended family can claim that they, their ancestors came here to uh, escape the war or to uh, because they're conscientious objectors or anything. That's, that's not the case in the ma- majority of my extended family. That is the case, maybe more so, for Mennonites that stayed in Russia. Uh, one of my grandmother's families was part of this group that stayed in Russia, and they had to contend with Honestly, their plight was not pretty. They had to contend with World War One, uh, the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War. After that, a really, I don't know, really rough interim period. Uh, be- and then the World War Two, all that stuff. Uh, just a really bleak sequence of, uh, of events there for the next generation or two. So in the Mennonites have stayed... For World War One, they did submit to the public schools. You could still have Sunday schools and teach your kids about your culture uh, when they're not at school. That wasn't a problem for the Mennonites that really stayed. Uh, should also note that uh, I've been told and there's some evidence that the Mennonites did, uh, if not own serfs, they used the Ukrainian um, the Ukrainian peasant population as their uh, as their laborers in indentured servants and and farm laborers as well they did take the take the place as a uh, of a ruling class as an aristocracy uh, that's how you would be viewed as the peasants around you the dispossessed ukrainian peasants and and tatars that uh, that you were brought in to tamp down uh, a couple hundred years ago they haven't forgotten like they're still around they're still all around your little uh, uh, ethnic German uh, capitalist enclaves living what's essentially still in feudal times. Russia was not in, 
uh, wealthy, industrialized uh, country compared to the likes of uh, Britain and the U.S. Not at all by any means. They're still feudal and still use it, living within that feudal structure. And that's something that follows the Mennonites around. Uh, like capitalism, uh, the capitalist social structure is essentially a feudal social structure. Author- essentially that authoritarian patriarchal the- theocracy. That's a feudal social structure with just with a different, a different name attached. Um, you can get rid of the uh, patriarchal, you can get rid of the uh, religious, uh, but it, you still have an authoritarian hierarchical, hierarchical social structure. That doesn't change throughout all these years, throughout all these historical time periods, from feudalism to capitalism to whatever's coming next. So in World War I, you have the Germans uh, invading from the West, coming East, moving into the, into the Ukraine. The Ukrainian peasants are there. They're taking up arms and they're, uh, they're fighting against the German invaders. Who are they going to identify as enemies as well? Perhaps the uh, ethnic group that's living in enclaves and is also employing you and exploiting you uh, that just happens to be of the same ethnic group as the army that's now invading you. So you would be seeing the Mennonites as the same as the German inv- invading army. Uh, the Mennonites come under, well, they're, they're stuck in the middle, basically, of, their, of the peasants around them and the German army. They, under this pressure, uh, some of them uh, give up, start compromising their uh, pacifist stances. And a bunch of the younger men uh, agree to be uh, trained and equipped by the German army as, um, as a local militia as a village defense force. And uh, one of my great-grandfathers was part of this force. Uh, Mennonites are still, to this day, divided over that whether um, that was a good thing or not. And uh, a lot of the Mennonite men that, that were involved in that, were uh, they weren't seen in too good of a, a light by people around them. Uh, maybe for good reason? I don't know. But anyway, one of my great-grandfathers was part of that group. And... Uh, after the Russian Revolution, uh, the uh, the revol- revolutionary uh, Bolshevik government uh, uh, made a truce with the Germans, uh, ending their involvement in World War One. When the German army was retreating, you still have the uh, German-trained village defense force, except uh, now they're sort of on their own, uh, an island in a sea of angry peasants, basically. Um, and that's where you get the um, the Nestor Machnow army in the Russian Civil War. The Russian Civil War started right after <laughs> World War One. Basically, World War One didn't really end for uh, for the Russians. The uh, victorious Allies in World War One shifted from fighting the Germans then to trying to crush the uh, the communist uh, revolution the new communist government in in Russia cuz that's a explicit threat to the capitalist global order you can't have a like motley group of uh, communists uh, in charge of uh, of a gigantic uh, world empire like the russian empire that can't happen so the brits and the americans like landed troops in russia to uh, try to put down the the bolsheviks uh, right after World War I, uh, the Russian people correctly identified this as a foreign invasion. So they banded together. Despite all odds, uh, they were able to uh, repel the 
the Americans, the British, the remaining, uh, the czarist forces, what was called the Russian army or the Russian white army, the czarist loyalist forces, the middle and upper classes, again, the business owners, the industrialists, the professionals were more, uh, were more aligned with the existing czarist status quo than with the, uh, the new, uh, revolutionary Bolshevik government, uh, again, which uh, was supported more so by the very small at this time industrial working class and the landless uh, peasants. Uh, they had more to gain, obviously, with with aligning themselves with uh, with the Bolsheviks. So uh, this is a, a patriotic project to expel foreign invaders. So that's what they were doing. And in where in the Ukraine, in the Ukraine, the Mennonite uh, settlements were an especially uh, prominent target really uh they're caught in them in a no-win situation in a in a vice between uh two opposing forces the czarist loyalist forces and the peasant forces around them uh nestor Machno's, uh anarchist black army being uh being one of them uh they're often referred to by mennonites who lived through that period as the ba- as the bandits those roving bands of bandits uh a lot of them were like organized uh, anarchists who were fighting to establish uh, autonomy for uh, the Ukrainian peasants in their own land. Uh, during this time, uh, the next wave of Mennonite immigration to Manitoba comes, including my great grandfather, uh, who I'm told was smuggled out of the village in a trunk or something like that, put on a train, left his family in the Ukraine and came over here. That's a common story you'll hear in Mennonite families. The Mennonites who stay in Russia then become targets uh, because they're uh, business owners and and landowners. Um, That puts them at odds with the uh, communist land reforms and the all the resulting uh, social upheaval and uh, and and violence that that comes with that that collectivization of uh, of the farms and the industrialization of the of the economy uh, under Stalin, who came to power after the Russian Revolution, after the Russian Civil War, all that stuff. Russian Stalin came after, so you'll you'll get things like, uh, especially people on the on the right uh, refer to as the Holodomor. Those things are are real. It's a very politically charged. Uh, period of history and conversation. It's really hard to have an honest conversation about what happened there. There was a famine, a countrywide famine. Mennonites did undoubtedly suffer from this famine, as well as Ukrainians, and it was a Soviet Union-wide famine, basically. There's debate about what the nature of it was. Some people consider it a genocide. Obviously, that's the conservative position. Uh, and if it was like human-made or uh, climate-related, probably some sort of mixture of the two. This is the uh, the Stalinism. This is this is the Mennonite generational uh, trauma memory of of Stalinism, of communism, of the communist uh, oppression. This is what they're referring to. Is this period? So when they get it wrong and think that everything that the government does is communism, this is the generational memory that's being triggered here. We can all agree that uh, that the Mennonites remaining were a target due to their ethnicity and their uh, economic class at the time. So you have 
you have Mennonites being sent to camps. You have Mennonite businesses being uh, reappropriated, land being collectivized, uh, all that stuff. Uh, maybe good for the landless Ukrainian peasants and and whatnot, but bad for the Mennonites. So you see that as very bad, and you do actually suffer because these are real physical uh, conditions. Uh, and this and that's a these are traumatic events that families carry with them for for generations. Uh, Mennonites were sent to camps. They were relocated to other parts of Russia. They did uh, emigrate to all to North America and South America. There's large Mennonite diaspora coming coming from this. Okay, th- that said, there still are a large portion of Mennonites that did stay in Russia. I think still even the, m- the majority. I don't know. There's still a lot of Mennonites in in Russia actually, but uh, unfortunately, the ones who stayed who are enduring uh, all of this uh, all of this uh, hardship. Uh, again, World War II breaks out. Again, you have the German army invading from the West, uh, invading now the Soviet Union, the former Russian Empire, and uh, they're coming in they're coming into contact with the Mennonites in their in their villages. Third Reich, these are Nazis. And uh, the Mennonites again are equipped and armed by the Nazi army. And there are documented reports uh, of the Mennonites uh, of Mennonites collaborating uh, with the Nazis army to identify Jewish members of their communities, to hand them over to the Nazi authorities uh, uh, to kill their Jewish neighbors. Essentially, this is this is what happened, and this is where the Mennonites directly encounter uh, explicit fascism. Did all Mennonites participate? No, they didn't all participate. Did all like the petty bourgeois Mennonites participate? No, not all of them did. Not all of them were collaborators, but a lot, a significant amount did, and a more significant amount kept their mouths shut and didn't stick up for their neighbors. That's including Mennonites that were sympathetic to Ukrainian peasants and Mennonites uh, suspected of having communist sympathies, uh, Mennonites that were suspected of being socialists or were more explicit socialists. They got, uh, they got handed over to the Nazis as well. Uh, and when you get uh, when someone hands someone over or co- collaborates with the Nazis, they're also Nazis. So uh, those are Ukrainian Mennonite Nazis, Ukrainian Mennonite fascists, and that's uh, explicit. And some of those people did make their way over here to Manitoba afterwards. Um, I've, I've been told firsthand by people who knew them, uh, people who did kill Jews during World War II. These are Mennonites. So uh, Mennonite communities were complicit in the Holocaust. You can say that with some certainty. Um, after World War II, you have something that uh, Mennonites refer to as the Great Trek. And that's when the, uh, the Mennonites who collaborated with the Nazis followed the Nazi army back to uh, Germany after the war, uh, being harassed and hounded by Ukrainian peasants and the Red Army again, again, the, if you take the perspective of the Ukrainian peasants and Red Army, uh, maybe for good reason, uh, you can see how maybe they would have a point to uh, to harass and try to uh, try to uh, interfere with the with that great trek of those poor, brave uh, Nazi collaborating Mennonites. And again, not all of those Mennonites on the great trek were Nazi collaborators. Some of them were their were family members of Nazi collaborators. Some of them. Uh, we're not just we're just not going to stick around because uh, they're 
reputation was so tarnished that they weren't going to be able to live in those communities ever again uh, because of that collaboration of some of their community members. So that's the that's the great trek to uh, to take the uh, Ukrainian history uh, side road for a brief second. The Nazis organized like organized units of ethnic Germans, including Mennonites and nationalist Ukrainians as like explicitly white supremacist uh, Nazi affiliated groups like the uh, the Waffen SS being prominent among them. These people who are involved with this not just Mennonites, but Ukrainians also emigrated to Canada and are here. We have uh, monuments to the Waffen-SS in public cemeteries here in Canada. You might have heard about that. You might be hearing, you might know of a lot of like right-wing or reactionary uh, Ukrainian groups. There's a real split in the Ukrainian community community where you have like uh, working class uh, Ukrainians who are like explicitly... Uh, who have explicitly socialist sympathies, uh, and they're building uh, work uh, working class organizations and groups. You have that's the group that built the Ukrainian uh, labor temple here in Manitoba, and then you also have ultra nationalist white supremacist uh, Ukrainian groups uh, at the same time. And uh, believe me, in the Ukrainian community, you know who is who, just like in the Mennonite community, you know who is who. So uh, our uh, current finance minister, Christian Freeland, her family is uh, ultra, ultra nationalist uh, Ukrainian white supremacist. Her grandfather operated a white supremacist, ultra nationalist uh, newspaper. And you have Christian Freeland um, coordinating Canadian aid to Ukrainian nationalists right now in the current escalation of, of the Ukrainian-Russia uh, standoff crisis that's happening that Canada's specifically trying to trying to stoke. Canada and the US are are heavily involved in trying to escalate this crisis. Uh, the Russians do war games, military exercises uh, on the Ukrainian border every year. Uh, this isn't a new thing. They're not trying to build up tensions more so than than they already are, uh, even though Russia would like to reincorporate Ukraine into Russia proper. The groups that Canada and the United States are training and equipping with actual like military gear and aid and money are largely the uh, the outgrowths or the remnants or the the successors of these ultra nationalist uh, Nazi equipped and trained groups. Some of them are even still specific, uh, uh, explicitly white supremacist and Nazi. Um, if you look at their ideologies, if you look up their history and and their uh, and their symbols that they use. That's uh, Canadian, right now, uh, Canadian state support of, uh, of fascist forces in foreign countries. That's, again, indisputable. Okay, well, moving back to um, fascist Mennonites in Canada in the 20th century, pre-World War II, during World War II, post-World War II. Pre-World War II, the Manitoba government hosted Joseph Goebbels here in Winnipeg. Uh, he was an honored guest, and uh, the Mennonite Children's Choir performed for him. Uh, everyone knew what Nazis were at the time. They knew that they were fascists. So that's the Canadian government rolling out the red carpet for the Nazi propaganda minister, and uh, Mennonites uh, willingly, very willingly, uh, playing along. Uh, there's documented Mennonite involvement in uh, Canadian fascist parties. There's a fascist party that was uh, founded in Winnipeg. 
Um, and Mennonites, again, the MCC working directly with uh, Nazis uh, during this time as well. So that's all pretty well documented if you want to go finding it. It's not so prominent now, but uh, a lot of Mennonites, in, not in mixed company, will, will let some of it slip. Um, we'll stop there at the end of World War II, getting more into contemporary history, but these are the roots, these are the reasons that, uh, that are driving uh, Mennonites in southern Manitoba. Uh, the MCC and other groups are doing, I think, like a, at least a decently good job of, of reckoning with this history that uh, the, the MCC did have uh, staff that weren't openly Nazis, that were uh, openly Nazi collaborators. The MCC did collaborate with the Nazis to resettle, to resettle Mennonites between the World Wars and during World War II. So why are the short answer is why are there so many Mennonites on the far right is that they were far right when they got here. They were far right before they got here. For the last 250 years, the Mennonites have been the settler colonial shock troops, uh, first for the Russian Empire and then later for the, Brit the British Empire in Canada. Uh, I could have just said that at the beginning, but uh, you wouldn't have gotten to listen to all this. And now, relatively briefly, so you have this far, this, uh, far right natural inclination uh, before they come to Canada. What sort of solidifies this and ties it into the broader far-right movement, especially the American far-right movement, is the shift from traditional Mennonite religious doctrine to explicitly uh, fundamentalist evangelical uh, religious doctrine that's being imported and brought up from the States. There's Mennonites in the States as well. There's a, a lot of Mennonites in the States. The roots of the Anabaptist tradition, the roots of the Mennonite tradition, and the roots of the evangelical tradition start, they both come from the Protestant Reformation. Fundamentalist evangelical tradition uh, stems from Calvin, John Calvin, uh, the Dutch Reformed uh, movement. Again, the Dutch, the Mennonites started out in, in Holland. Some of the roots uh, between Mennonites and American evangelicals are exactly the same, and there's really no conflict. Except in that American fundamentalist evangelicals like fundamentalist Baptists and Pentecostals, the charismatic church movements, health and wealth, gospel, things like that, they have no problem with the state. They are explicitly wrapped in the American flag in the states. And here in Canada, they, they wrap themselves in the, in the Canadian flag. So you have a melding of far-right, patriarchal, authoritarian, capitalist uh, religion with uh, the state in the evangelical movement. And the evangelical movement was stoked and created essentially to get religious people more into politics, to bolster the far right uh, in America uh, through, this is the Billy Graham method, essentially. So now like in towns in Southern Manitoba, you have Youth for Christ centers, Billy, Graham's, uh, Billy Graham started Youth for Christ. Um, and you have more explicitly patriotic uh, expressions of, of religion. Uh, churches like uh, Springs Church here in Winnipeg, where our current health minister, Audrey Gordon, attend. Also, the new leader of the National Conservative Party, Southern Mennonite Candace Bergen, uh, attends Springs Church here in Winnipeg. So that's uh, that ties it all nicely up together in a little bow, doesn't it? Uh, in Steinbeck, you have the Southland Church, uh, explicitly evangelical, charismatic, 
megachurch modeled on the megachurch model in the states uh this is make no bones about it it's a it's a capitalist grift rather than uh, an expression of authentic religion it has very little to do with establishing the kingdom of heaven on on earth and all the beliefs that the Mennonite communities were founded on in the, in the first place it not only is like doesn't shun the abomination it embraces the abomination and says hey the abomination's good you can be part of the abomination and have the abomination work for you and if you're poor and depressed that's your own damn fault and there's nothing really we can do about it uh come to more of our programs will you uh come to our bible studies and care groups come to our every week every day of the week there's programming to hook you to hook you in and if you're suffering we have the answer for you and it's giving more money to us that's a pyramid scheme these aren't uh, churches these are pyramid schemes so i very rarely identify as as a christian anymore but if you're raised as a christian you can't escape that sort of conditioning and and uh, I haven't really changed throughout my my childhood. I, uh, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the churches around me have, and uh, a lot of the people around me around me have. And uh, I never really figured out why until I figured out uh, the cl- uh, this class consciousness thing. And people act in their own the own in, in their own economic self interest and the interest in the aggregate of their class. So these churches, if you're already part of the capitalist class and the petty bourgeois class, they be, just become like uh, business networking events. All your friends go there. They all own businesses or are uh, well-to-do professionals or something. And and it's uh, you all circulate and pass your money around and you suck up the money from your uh, from your employees. And uh, and you give it to Leon Fontaine and whoever the southland guy as i forget but these are grifters these are hucksters these are carnival barkers uh these like mega churches these evangelical mega churches like springs and southland are to religion what the wwe is to wrestling it's all spectacle and entertainment the righteous gemstones is a documentary they're all playing a role and if you know that then uh it loses a lot of its power if you if you know that and still go anyway, well, whatever. Uh, you're you're getting something from it, uh, but you you might want to reconsider what that is and at whose expense. So the the evangelical thing is a, another huge gigantic topic. These are all huge gigantic topics, and we simply don't have the time to get into them, especially not in one podcast episode that's going on nearly two hours now. So. I think I gave you enough material here that you can tie all the threads together again. This is, I want to say again, I'm not trying to offer my opinions. I'm trying to offer what I've learned and been taught by uh, people who know more than I do. I'm not trying to freestyle here. So I'm not trying to make grand leaps of of, uh, logic where you have to suspend belief to see some sort of like uh, shadowy cabal that's behind all this you you know these these people have names and addresses and they live among you uh generally no elon musk and jeff bezos don't live among us but you can see how these guys uh, get spewn out of the of our capitalist economic system and social system and why people seem to have such a fetish for these guys we have our own little capitalist aristocracy here in in southern manitoba and that's what's playing itself out in the freedom convoy uh 
Um, it's a u- uniting of all these different, seemingly dispar- disparate uh, groups of people that actually have uh, a similar interest, and it's a similar class interest. And that's why you have to integrate class into your political analysis, into your understanding of the world. Your social movements, your social justice movements must be explicitly tied to class. They must be led by the working class, which is disparate and diverse anyway. So um, I'll do another episode after this. I want to stop doing these episodes. I don't want to do one of these every week. They take a lot of work and like us, uh, and I'm unemployed right now. So I need to prioritize projects that like I can get like paid from, or at least the I'm learning skills from. Uh, this uh, is not a this isn't going to pay anything. <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to do it forever. I'm trying to contribute what I can in, in the moment while I'm while I'm able to. So in the next one, maybe I'll do like a little bit more of fleshing out some of these themes that from these first two episodes, and also talk about what more what uh, ordinary people can do and that's beyond just in your individual families and communities and stuff how you need to integrate this into a a wider wider social movements and that's called the united front strategy and clara zetkin lays that out uh in her book fighting fascism that we were uh, using for the previous episode so you can keep using that uh fighting fascism how to Struggle, How to Win by Claire Zetkin and the United Front strategy. Uh, so I have some reading to do in the meantime and uh, hope you enjoyed this one and the first one. Hope it's helpful if you're thinking in some way. I apologize for any mistakes that I'm that I'm making. Uh, this is just, just a reference point for whoever can use it and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, hopefully. Take care. Bye-bye.